You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Uh, sure beats filing taxes. <laughs> I'm Melissa Crusoe. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 73, Inline World Building. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of World Building for Masochists, and we are thrilled today to have Melissa Caruso back again as a guest on the show. Hi, Melissa. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I have to say, I feel like your guest episode with us, the, the first one, was one of my favorites because we just got to geek about dressing for the quest you want the whole time. And it was fantastic. And so I'm really looking forward to talking to you again. But for those of, of our listeners who maybe um, have not been with us since the beginning, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? And yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, uh, I write uh, fantasy with murder, magic, and mayhem. Uh, my first series, uh, Swords and Fire, starts with uh, the Tethered Mage and uh, is complete now. And then my second series, Rooks and Ruins, starts with the Obsidian Tower. And the third book, The Ivory Tomb, is coming out this December. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> so for me, who's way, be, way behind on my reading, are those two series in the same world or are they different worlds? They are in the same world, but they are 150 years apart with completely different characters. Cool. And Yeah. And this is one of my favorite things about those two series in connection with each other is that so often you finish a series and you're like, wow, I wonder what this place was like 100 years ago. I wonder what this place is going to end up looking like in 50 years. And you get to play with that in these books, like wherever you start, because you can you could read the second series first. With right. some minor spoilerage of like the world didn't blow up, so <laughs> right, yeah. there's that still there. Um, so. FYI, but yeah, so it, it's really fun to get to see that, and probably I'm sure some absolutely bonkers world building that you got to play with in doing that. It was a lot of fun. The, be the best part about it actually was that I got to come at the same worlding. Well, I mean same world building 150 years later, but from a very different angle because my uh, POV character was uh, from a very different culture and a different country. So all this same world building points looked very different from uh, the angle of somebody who had extremely different opinions about <laughs> the implications of all these things. So that was a lot of fun. That is always the fun thing to play with whenever you're doing that sort of thing. Like way back in the dawn of time when I first started doing the world building for the Meridian world, I created these, you know, national documents. It was like all the information of like, it is what the government's like. This is what the religion's like, blah, blah. And then it occurred to me, it's like, whose point of view am I writing these documents from? Right. And that just blew my mind. And I'm like, oh, I have to go through and really think about who is saying this and what, like, when you're saying, like, oh, this is a very primitive society, it's like, who who is making that decision? Who's calling it that? And so then going back through and very specifically adding voice to those documents was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
I also I had a bit of a struggle with myself having the uh, second series be set 150 years later because uh, I wanted it to be a long time after so that my characters in the first series wouldn't have all of their work undone immediately, which is a pet peeve of mine when you're like, yay, <laughs> we won the first series conflict. Oh, now everything blew up for the second series concept, <laughs> uh, uh, conflict immediately. So I wanted all this time to elapse so I could feel like everything they did was meaningful. Then the first order came. And- <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, everything's ruined. Nothing you did was meaningful. And, it's, and, and, and yeah, you might as well have just skipped that entire series. That drives me bonkers. So, but, uh, but I didn't want to advance my world building uh, the equivalent of 150 years in uh, uh, our world because then I would have moved past the era of really fancy coats, which is extremely important to me. And so I was like, all right, well, you know what? Uh, also, firearms would have gotten too advanced. But it's about the coats priority. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I believe that the advancement of our society past fancy coats was a giant mistake. Oh, yeah. And we should I, return to yeah. fancy coats as soon as possible. I am 100% so, for fancy coats. There's, there's yeah. no good reason for the abandonment of fancy coats. I don't know no. what happened. It was a dark moment in our history when we moved away from fancy dark coats. Dark and terrible. Yes. I get it. I know. But I also completely believe in the validity of world building by aesthetic. Like, <laughs> make your choices based on that. I think it's great. Well, because Absolutely. you know, there, there's there is there are many fantasies that are very fun to read that have you know the, the main character comes in and takes off their olive green trench coat. But you know, there is something fantastic about reading you know a character coming in in an elaborately embroidered frock coat with a great coat over it and just the sweeping and the flouncing and the, oh yeah, you know, you gotta have that too. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Teams of dressers or go home. Yes. <laughs> so one thing I feel like we we loop back around on a lot on the show with many of our guests and with each other is that. Crafting the world itself happens for most of us, like in different points during the writing. Some people are like all in the pre-writing process. They're building the whole world. Other people are like drafting as they go. And we've, we've had guests who have said, yeah, I'm really more of a fill in the blanks later kind of, um, kind of a world builder. But I don't know that we've talked about really specifically kind of like how your world building process and your writing process line up and what that looks like when you go back to refine, revise, edit your work later. And since Melissa does fantastic like craft threads on Twitter and is just is a fantastic plotter, which means she must be revising and editing the heck out of this stuff because we all know how that works. We thought that it would be fantastic to talk about this. So out of curiosity, Melissa, what kind of a world builder are you? Do you pre-build, during drafting, fill in the blanks later? Like, what does your process look like? Well, uh, so for me, world building, and thank you, by the way, for saying all those really nice things. (laughs) But for me, the um, world building tends to kind of go back and forth a little. Like for me, I'll usually start with um, uh, some small detail or a vibe or an image or just an atmosphere I want to capture. And then uh, I get that first. And then I'll tend to kind of work backward and forward from there. Like, okay, well, if I have this very vibey scene with this weird, cool atmospheric thing, how how do we get there? Why are they, why do we have 
have this? What are the thousands of years of history that led us to this moment, <laughs> like where now we have this creepy scene with these weird candles and this chanting or whatever? You know, that's not a literal one from my books, but um, and then sort of forward from there, uh, saying, okay, well, if I have this magic that I wanted just for this one cool moment, what are all the effects that's going to have? on my society. Uh, <laughs> what have I done now? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, literally, and sometimes it's major, major aspects of my world building. And I would like to say, yes, I planned this all in advance. It was very, very, you know, intentional. And, but in my series, I would say in every single published book I have so far, ex- uh, with, uh, except for the first one, um, the witch lords are like an absolutely central component of world building. They're huge. They're absolutely central to the plot. They started as a throwaway line in book one, <laughs> just sort of about, oh, there's this other country that has these like, you know, kind of crazy witch lords and, and they're spooky and whatever. And that was just <laughs> in an early draft. It was just this throwaway line. And then it turned to, out to be like incredibly central to the world building and the plot later because uh, when I had to revise actually my first book from um, historical fantasy to second world like and do all this world building around expanding out from what was originally a historical fantasy very centered in like one or two cities out of this whole giant world I was like okay well those crazy witch lords I talked about in that throwaway sentence now they're <laughs> an entire huge thing and and then that wound up with spreadsheets and color coding and maps and historical time <laughs> Lines, and then all the details came out of that. Uh, and then, of course, all those spreadsheets and historical timelines go back into these vibey atmospheric scenes where I'm like, and this guy is got has just got a big headdress with antlers because that looks cool, you know. <laughs> Again, world building by aesthetic is very valid. Oh yeah. <laughs> I love the cyclical nature of it too. That it's you know. You kind of, you hit something and then sometime later you cycle back around to this and then suddenly you're building something that didn't expect on the first pass. But hey, here we go. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you keep writing within the same world. I think that's the thing you constantly have to do is like, you, no matter how detailed a bit of world building you did, then once you've written the book, like no... You know, it's like no plan, you know, survives contact with the enemy and writing the book is definitely the enemy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You then have to sort of go back through your world building stuff and be like, that didn't really pan out, did it? Or, you know, ooh, in writing it, that's not as good of an idea as I thought it was. And, you know, let's let's change that. I mean, I'm constantly going back to my original world building documents of of Meridane and finding Things that I'm like, I'm not, I'm not as happy with that as I as as I was when I wrote that seven years ago. I mean, also the fact that like a lot of the stuff I wrote seven, twelve, fifteen years ago, and I'm in a different place now, where I'd be like, mm, that's 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 not great. And but I think yeah. it is a thing where you always will want to go back, reassess, redo, and then be like, okay, now that I've done that, what better things can I do with the work itself? Absolutely. So I feel like we've. The, the co-hosts um, here have talked about our world building process probably quite a bit on air here and there over time, how we do it, what do we do, who uses spreadsheets, who doesn't, you know. Um, but I don't know that we've ever really dug into our like 
writing process itself and like what kind of writers we are, what kind of revisors we are. And that is so related to how do we fit in that world building that it might be useful to kind of like put those two things in comparison with each other. So like what kind of writers are you guys? Are you like garbage draft writers? Are you like heavy revisers or are you like very precise, like outline to draft? So like, like what do you, how do you, how do you tackle it? Melissa, do you want to hit us first? Oh, sure. I know for me, uh, I tend to, I mean, again, it tends to be a little bit cyclical for me, but in a different way. Like I'll generally start with just enough uh, planning to get me going and I'll, I'll have like a few pages of note. Well, more than a few, but you know, <laughs> I'll have, I'll have a rough outline and a rough idea where I'm going and I get started. And then I tend to get about 20,000 words in and go, Oh no, no, this is totally wrong. And, <laughs> and then I restart and I do like another outline and then I get 50,000 words in and I go, Oh wait, Nope. I need a lot of this is broken and I need to fix it. And I'm constantly um, updating my outline. And I tend to have like have the outline where what's coming up next is in very sharp focus. And we'll have like all these details about all the beats I want to hit in every single scene. And then uh, uh, the stuff that's in the distance, you know, that's 10 chapters out is like and then some stuff happens and they get into a. <laughs> argument and they stab this guy and you know it's all very vague and because i know that's going to get revised and fleshed out as i go i just imagine the one note is stabbing (laughs) (laughs) needs more stabbing oh absolutely so often my outlines have that like and so and so has a brilliant plan and (laughs) yeah Yeah. i'm like what's the brilliant plan now i actually have to think of it god Damn it. <laughs> Having to think of the brilliant plans the worst. It's the problem with putting things like that in an outline is that, like, when you do the outline, you're like, eh, that's future writer's problem. And then you get to the future, and it's like, damn you, past writer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why? So, Cass and Marshall, are, are, how, do you, how do you attack it? I am an absolute chaos muppet of a drafter. I, and it's not, I'm, I don't advocate my process because it is not efficient in any sense of the word, which is why it can take a while for me to like get my wheels under me with a new project. I, I also begin, you know, sort of with my vibe, my aesthetic, my, my time period, and I begin with characters and, and a lot of the early drafts are often just sort of letting those characters collide into each other and see what happens, hoping that a plot will walk up and introduce itself at some point. <laughs> based off of, you know, what those characters care about and what they find interesting and, like, where the tensions are. And and that takes a while. That takes a little bit of time. I tried to be an outliner when I started working on book two of the Oven Cycle, and it made me miserable. I was so unhappy. <laughs> like, I made the outline, and it looked fine. And then I tried to write the outline, and I was like, this is awful. I hate everything about this. <laughs> I felt just far too constrained. And I was like, I'm just going to throw this out the window. And then I was much happier. The project I'm working on now, I actually did do a zero draft of. I tried that technique for the first time and I actually I think I kind of liked it um it gave me the basic beats sort of the the general overarching story and a few really good scenes but it also showed me where the holes were where I hadn't thought things out enough where I needed to revisit my world building and um flesh some things out or change some character motivations to fit the world they were actually in and not like this other idea that I was having and like the tropes weren't matching the world and that zero draft showed me a lot of where those tension points were so I've, I've done it a little bit differently with different projects, but generally I err on the side of chaos Muppet drafter. 
And I'm oh. the exact opposite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're not surprised. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, I, you know, I tend to outline very heavily. I tend to, with any project, just have, like, the big concept of it in my head and who, like, the central two or three people are within it. And then I have a whole, like... I have a whole outlining system, which I will not bore you with right now, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I have a system to, which basically I put together because I was like, I need to, I need to learn how to outline a novel. And I read a bunch of books of how to outline a novel and all of them, I was like, this is incredibly unhelpful. And I realized they were unhelpful because they were basically how those people outline novels and didn't match what I wanted to do. So then I did this whole process of like, actually like, analyzing the kinds of books that were like the, the book that books that I wanted to write and other forms of media that told stories like the ones I wanted to tell and analyze what, how the structure of all those and created an outline structure system that befits me and my mindset. And then I use that to then break down into the beats of the story. And then I will come up with, a sizable outline, like it's usually about a 5,000 word document of what the, of everything that happens. And then I will actually write it. And again, it doesn't survive contact with the enemy, <laughs> but usually then that draft that I finally get, which is a pulling teeth process that usually completely stalls out at about 30,000 words. And then again, at 60,000 words, and then and <laughs> where I have to like stop and reassess everything. By the time I actually have a finished first draft, it's a pretty solid structure of a draft. Like the difference between that and what ends up being the final novel isn't particularly different. Oh, I rip mine apart so much in structural edits. I envy you that. Like I do the restarting thing and then it's like, oh, no, 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 no. And I have to rip it all up again. Yeah, I just had a little TikTok meme of, God, I wish that I could do that <laughs> running in my head. Like, a first draft that actually resembles your final draft. <laughs> oh, cannot yeah, relate. Cannot relate. It, I mean, the process of getting what I call a finished first draft done, I usually have about a half an inch less hair by the time it's done. <laughs> but... Did you start life as a yes. woman? Yes. Um, well, that's a good point, too, is like. Actually, finishing drafts is also not something I'm big on. I Because I have to, like, if I make a major change, if I do something that's going to drastically change everything, I cannot just power through and finish a draft if I know that that's happening. And, like, some writers can, apparently, so they say. But I'm like, no, I have to stop and go back right. and fix the thing. Yeah. And, and then Because the emotional yeah. subtext yeah. of every single scene is going to be completely different with, with yeah. the different events. And I, I write out of order. So sometimes it's like, <laughs> you know, go back and change also means go forward and change. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why it's a mess. Rowena, I do you? write out of order all the time, too, though. So there's that. Yeah, writing out of order is like, that's that's my secret weapon. That's, that's how I get stuff done. Because if I had to write in order, I would hit like a stolly point and be like, I, just, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have know. to write an order. I'm no, jealous. I have to like skip ahead. <laughs> I have like these scenes that are almost like they're almost like like cupcakes in my plan, which is not written down in any way, by the way. There is no outline. There's just kind of like rough notes that are literally no more than probably fifty words of like this is where this is going. And that, but I but there are scenes that I know are coming up that if I am stuck, I'm like, I'm gonna write that scene. And 
that'll get me back on track. And it usually does. And then I can go back and fill in the blanks between what happens. So my, my drafting process is very patchy and very cyclical because I'll start usually at the kind of, usually at the beginning, I start at the beginning and then writes out to a point, And then I'm like, I'm going to jump ahead to a cupcake scene. And then I go back and maybe refine things that had happened through or plug things in. And what I end up with as a first draft is the beats are all there typically. And it's, it's, it's a complete thing, but it's a bit sparse. Like I underwrite quite a bit. So then I can go back and revision and like flesh out, especially at the emotional underpinnings and things that I, I want to play up more and develop little subplots or sub pieces that can do that for me. So yeah, it's, it's closer to being a gremlin like Cass than being a firm outliner like Marshall, but yeah. That's really interesting to me about the cupcake scenes, the cupcake scenes. And I love that term because I have those two, but my problem is that I can't write out of order. So I always want to get to those so badly <laughs> that I do an absolutely <laughs> crappy job of writing everything that leads up to one because I just want to get to the cupcake scene so fast. And then I go back and I'm like, oh, I skipped over like a lot of really important stuff. It was like, uh, and then like, I don't know, there was a war and so people died. But then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I skipped over like a whole damn like war campaign at one point. I was like, oh, I'll get to yeah. that later. But for me, that is, that actually helps me with those those things. Like if I write, if I jump ahead and write like one of those tentpole cupcake scenes that I know is like, like this is a big moment, then those bits of like, oh, this is the connective tissue I need to get here become a lot clearer, like, because I know where the board needs to land when I get there. And so... At least for me, that aspect of it works a lot better. But you're like, yeah, I definitely, since I know where those big fun scenes are, it's kind of like the big effects movies, like the Jurassic Parks and the Marvel movies, where they like know what their big action scenes are going to be. And so they send that stuff mm. to the visual effects crews ahead of time who like already start working on mm. all the, you know, all the digital work that they need to do because that needs months and months of, of data to, to, to process. So that stuff needs to get like going ahead first and then they'll film the, the stuff to, to lead up to that stuff. But to an extent that is kind of like what my process is. I, to me, there is a difference between tentpole scenes and cupcake scenes because like tentpole scenes are the ones that are important for the plot. And I generally have an idea of what those are and like where they need to happen to like hold the rest of everything up. Cupcake scenes are treats and they may or may not be the same thing as tentpole scenes. Sometimes they may be a scene that is completely extraneous that may even end up getting cut later, but it just delights me to write. And, and so I, to me, there's a difference between those two creatures. That's yeah, true. My, my, my cupcake scenes are usually important in some way, but that way might just be like, there's a lot of pretty things here that I want to write. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> I feel like mine are usually characters like, really feeling some feels and expressing them to each other in, in dramatic ways. And, <laughs> so we're all very different writers and we're all very different world builders. Um, but how, how do, how did the twain come together? Do does when you're in your cyclical outlining, Melissa, like, like <laughs> where, how does, how does the world building refinement happen within that? So uh, it's definitely, I mean, it's an entire process. There's always, so one of the big 
issues is, of course, that sort of tension between world building and plot, where uh, there's the question of, all right, well, ideally, I want the I've created all this world building, and some of it was just kind of for fun. And then uh, but but it has to serve the plot to be present in the book. And um, sometimes, uh, for instance, in the Quicksilver Court, second book of Rooks and Ruin, I it's set in a country that I hadn't shown before, and it's in their court. And I had this whole history behind this court where like there had been um, uh, royal and noble families and there had been like this uprising, but then the empire, because they were client state of the empire, it intervened and made them make nice. And this weird sort of government was patched together that was still relatively new where they had a house of lords and a house of commons. And there was this tension between them had absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> the plot of the book. And I kept trying to make there be this big political subplot about the tension between the the lords and the, uh, and the, and the merchant class and the noble class and how it was playing out politically. And it was tying, and I tried and tried to tie it into the plot and have it play out. And I was like, this is, this has nothing to do with this story, even though I am desperate to convey this world building. I need to find a different way to try and convey it and and not have it be conveyed through plot. So I wound up instead actually trying to convey it through architecture, that there was this royal palace that had been kind of remodeled after the uh, after the uprising to like have all of these newer like statues depicting like heroic figures from that and everything and integrating it that way and having it be just kind of a background element and, you know, and having characters who are background characters there and trying to have it play out there, but but not foregrounding it because that was just not working. Draft after draft, I tried to make it work and it wouldn't. So that's that's one example. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because it's like we have the world building in our heads, and we have the world building that actually makes it to the page. Right. And there are a lot of decisions that have to happen between those two things. <laughs> like yes. we talk a lot, you know, with, with, you know, a lot of our episodes about the iceberg that like, you know, what actually is on the page is this little tiny bit at the tippy tippy top. And there's all this stuff under it supporting like how we got there and what we know about our world that we don't share. And like part of the process of, I, I think that like editing and revision and, and cyclical drafting process is how do you decide what ends up on the page? Certainly, right. if I can't justify it with plot or with character, then, you know, it's got to go. But that, but justify with character can sometimes be a really fun, like, I'm... I, God, that's like other duties as assigned. Like, <laughs> yeah, definitely a slippery slope. <laughs> because, I mean, there's certainly, there's a bit in Thorn where it's like, this part doesn't really advance the story at all, but I enjoyed this bit where I basically just wanted to explain a weird thing about potatoes in the world because, you know, <laughs> because potatoes are a new world food and, you know, therefore I had to justify them. And the way I did it was my main character is like just trying to sit and eat lunch and there's these just loud, obnoxious, upperclassmen students who are just having one of those, you know, honors dorm arguments <laughs> about useless things right next to him and just like Jesus can you can you just shut up but it gives me the excuse to have that information there with their arguing because there there's there's sometimes nothing n not a better tool in getting your world building out than a loud, obnoxious student who just wants to tell you things. <laughs> oh yeah. Than a nerd? Yeah. yeah. Nerd nerds are helpful. Nerd. 
When in doubt, when in insert doubt, nerd. Insert. Um, <laughs> that was probably one of the more artless moments of mine in terms of <laughs> just, just. Well, because I mean, it's, it's, for it, it's funny too, because it's like, yeah, that question of like, wh- why does this need to be here? I mean, to some extent, because I want it. <laughs> is somewhat valid because it's contributing to the tone of the book and the aesthetic and what the readers coming back to a Melissa Caruso book because they like Melissa Caruso books, right? So clearly you're doing something right with the world building. So I mean, there is an element of because I want to is it's valid. Judiciously used is valid. I do like the idea of justifying the potato as the name of like a world building book or, or course or something like i think that we should pitch justifying yeah. the potato just to, to some to some yeah. con as a panel <laughs> i think there's uh in terms of what makes it the page there's also the question of the role of the editor like um you know i've gotten some great feedback about what you know a lot of times my editors will be pushing me to include more uh of certain aspects of world building and it, it definitely has varied by editor and you can tell everybody has their bits of world building that they're really into You're like what about well tell me more you know like i've had uh, uh editors who were like tell me more about like you know how this fits into roles in of family and society and then i have like uh, my current editor was like i want more creepy poetry uh <laughs> give me more lore and like little weird snippets of creepy poetry and i'm like yes <laughs> so you know uh <laughs> i think that varies you know, there, there, there's a bit like, and there's different ways you can convey it. Like you sometimes, sometimes it is going to be the student lecturing or the nerd who's just, you know, <laughs> quoting you from the book they have open in their lap, which like, I'm sure I've never done 700 times, but, um, uh, and then other times it is a creepy poem. And like, what does that even mean? I don't know. It's like a nursery rhyme. There were dolls in it. I don't know what's happening here or superstitions or like, just, I love it when people just make it part of the world and don't even necessarily explain it like oh look these people are like casting salt in front of them to ward off evil is it to ward off evil spirits i don't know there's there's salt going on there's something you know well see that is for me a lot of the fun where you you know you know this culture all their clothes are black because there was a plague of locust like creatures 300 years ago that ate every piece of cloth that wasn't black and so they just said screw it we're only making black cloth now you don't need to tell people that but you can just make that be an aesthetic thing that happens and therefore you know that defines everything that they do from there on without having to tell your readers those inciting incidents and it can just be you know they wear black and throw salt in front of them and that's just what they do and you don't need to explain it and that's i think that's actually half of the fun is just giving that that level of flavor and color without necessarily then, like, giving all the lore about why it's there and then just letting it be just for its own purpose. And then your editor can be like, hmm, can you explain that a little more? And right. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I can. But, like, if you Let have, like, 20 locus. of those things in the book and then the editor is like, this is the one that needs explaining more, like, then that, that gives you that cue of, like, okay, that then therefore yeah. I shall explain that more, but not bore you with the other 19. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think we have to remember, too, that fantasy readers are reading fantasy partially because they like to be immersed in another world. So, you know, the, the world building isn't, you know, yes, it's 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 serving plot, it's explaining character, but it is also there as something for them to get to dive into and play with. And so you have those questions of like, OK, so 
what, what am I going to describe about this world? Because we do, you know, a little bit of description. This is the, the build, what the building looks like, or this is what this person is wearing, or this is what the animals in the field over there look like or whatever. And so we have those choices. Okay. What, what aesthetic am I going to lean into? What am I going to, you know, create for my reader in terms of their little brain vacation that we're going to take for a paragraph here? Absolutely. And then we have the question of, so we have, we have the nerd and we have the open book. What other strategies do you use to convey world building? One of my favorites is just sort of the daily use world building. You know, the like, uh, that this is somebody who is just, this is what they're dealing with in their day. These are the things, these are the objects that they're handling so much that they've become worn with use. These is these are the little hassles that they run into on their way to work, except now they're trying to get across the city because the other side is on fire and someone they love is, is dying. But now they're stuck in traffic again. Why is this happening? You know, like, uh, yeah, you know, all those little those little exchanges like and and I feel like a lot of those things can convey so much more about the world. Like, um, okay, well, maybe if I have to file paperwork because my, you know, my cart hit my neighbor's cart, then that that tells me a lot about, okay, well, this is a bureaucratic world if I'm worried about, you know, or, or, or maybe I can smooth it over with a bribe. Well, that tells me something about the world. Or maybe you absolutely can't, and you have to fill out those forms in triplicate and file them at the correct office in the correct window of time, or you're completely screwed. Or, you know, or maybe, like, maybe it's whatever. There is no there is no paperwork. You ran over your neighbor's cart, and they're lucky you didn't shiv them while you were at it. <laughs> Toughs. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's just those, those little things that can convey uh, so much implicitly instead of spelling it out. And I, and I love it when people are able to, I mean, well, I especially love it when I can pull it off, but as a reader, I also love it when, <laughs> when people can do that kind of implicit world building where it doesn't have to be spelled out for you. Uh, even though they probably have pages of notes, but there's just the one little detail that you can, your brain can fill in all the rest. I mean, I think that is sort of like the platonic ideal is that you, <laughs> is that you write it with with that care towards you know telling details in negative space that the readers can then find all those little things you want, but that you still have all that deep lore information so that when you get the role playing game rule book of your worlds, <laughs> you can you know have all of that stuff there that then then in, you know is the mass detail for the people who want the RPG rulebook is not most of your readers, even your fantasy readers, but the ones who want it really want it. <laughs> for me, it's often a matter of like characters moving through space, whether that's like, I love using public spaces. The oven cycle has lots of scenes that take place out in the streets and in the markets. And you can convey so much quickly of like just what they're passing. And is it normal or is it unusual and eye catching? But also in private homes, you know, like, what is the furniture they navigate every day? And I mean that furniture in, in both a literal and more metaphoric sense. What are they navigating around? What what do they interact with? And I think I've said this before in, in some episodes. I think of it as the stage business. What are the characters doing and interacting with while they are having conversations, while they are moving plot? They're, they're not just in a black box stage. They are in space and they interact with things and those things can can be little ways to drop in almost just in, in, in apposition like you know parent little comma and then the object that tells you something about world building comma and then the sentence goes on um and that's where it's easy to sort of do those quick drops certainly in how you're addressing the set and in thinking in terms of 
having been one of those actors who's on stage for a long time with very few lines, um, <laughs> you, you, you do learn, like, how am I interacting with this space in a way that is not disruptive to the scene? And I think it is sort of, it is sort of that same art of creating a space that is interactive for your characters without being disruptive and calling attention to itself. Yeah, it doesn't overwhelm what's happening. It doesn't become the focus of the scene, but it's there adding the flavor. Yeah. I think that dialogue and conversation can be a really interesting one, too. Partially because it is such a potential pitfall, because you don't want to do the, as you know, Bob, kind of, you know, moment that's just like, oh, I roll. But the way that characters talk to one another, the way they interact, like, you know, even how their tone changes depending on who they're talking to. And depending on who you have talking to each other and what kinds of rapport or tension they have, what they pull out of each other in terms of what they have a shared memory or shared antagonism or whatever, like can relate directly back to the world building. So you're like, yeah, you know, last, last summer at the fish market, you said, and so I've dropped in, you know, a event that must be an annual interesting thing. And you're kind of like, oh, okay. So fish is important for this society. They have a whole market for it in nice. No, what were you saying about what he said to so-and-so about his wife and what? Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Then's fighting words. And you move past the fish market, but it was there. <laughs> but if you can, like, say, in those moments, yeah. like, also show, like, say, code switching or other ways of the way people interact in different ways in different situations, like, that that gives you tons of, you know, telling details and negative space for your reader to fill in that you then don't have what, to, like... What are people willing to talk about? Yeah. What are they willing to say out loud? Yeah, what, are what are they are not that, willing to talk about or say out loud? What you don't talk about? Yes. I mean, yeah. in my household with two small children, we don't talk about Bruno, but, you know. Because then you'd have to watch the movie what, again. <laughs> yes. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but what are those things within a community or even a family or a larger culture that you, you don't talk about that? That's it's inappropriate or impolite or potentially brings down a magical curse upon your people. I don't know. We don't talk about it. Absolutely. We don't talk about the curse because that's part of the curse. Yes. Well, and that's um, uh, uh, thinking about that. So you have the societal lens and then you also have your world building being conveyed through a uh, character lens as well. So like uh, that world building uh, conveys character and character conveys world building just because every piece that you show uh, is your character is going to perceive it in a certain way and have their own opinions about it. Uh, Like, you know, uh, an example I like to give is, okay, if I'm describing New York City, if it's from my lens as somebody who is uh, very overwhelmed by the sheer amount of sensory input in a city and finds it like extremely intimidating, I'm going to describe that completely differently uh, using different language and focusing on different details uh, than uh, if I'm describing it from the perspective of my brother who lives in Brooklyn, loves the city, knows a ton about it, uh, and is not intimidated by it all and finds it all very exciting. Like we're literally in different cities. I mean, not okay, that's a, that's a very bad use of literally, but <laughs> we might as well be literally in different cities. Um, and uh, we're literarily uh, uh, in yeah. different cities. <laughs> yes, we're literarily in different cities. There we go. Um, yeah, and and uh, uh, so 
it's that sort of interaction of world building and character, uh, which de- sometimes I find myself, that's something I have to fix in revision, where I've just described something the way it is, when what I need to is to describe it the way my character experiences it. I like that, that delineation. <laughs> and that's a good question, too. So you've, you've gotten the draft down, however, by hook or by crook you got there. <laughs> When you go back and refine, what kind of refinements do you find that you typically have to make? Are are they pivot refinements like that? Are they trimming out info dumps that you just got in there at the time because you felt like you had to? Are they fleshing out stuff that's just bare bones? Like, what do you find that you typically have to do? For me, I know, uh, and I'm betting this is probably a common answer, I often have to cut a lot of extraneous details that I've put in there because I was either excited about them or was still figuring them out for myself. Uh, And sometimes I'll get repetitious, you know, or just go into way more detail than is necessary about like, oh, let me tell you exactly how this cool magic thing works. So much detail. (laughs) We're going to give you all the theory behind it and the particulars and compare it to this and give you historical. No. And then I wind up cutting that paragraph and a half down to like a sentence, uh, which is very sad, but <laughs> somewhere the like three people who really wanted to hear that, you know, can, can be sad as it vanishes into the void. But yeah, I have to cut stuff a lot. And the, uh, the other thing, um, interestingly, sometimes when I get the feedback of like of something of wanting more information, it even means that you need less. Like uh, sometimes I'll have my editor come back like wanting us uh, uh, wanting something explained, but I realized actually I should just never have brought that up (laughs) because it's some incredibly complicated, uh, detail that, uh, that, that just really, (laughs) all all you did was open a can of worms. (laughs) I I opened a can of worms. I just need to not bring the can of worms onto the page and then I don't have to open it. And then I don't have to describe all the worms that popped out. And then other time, another thing is, is actually not even necessarily the depth I go into, but when the information is introduced and how it's built up to, right? So like, I feel like early on when people are getting oriented, you really don't want to give them too many details. Uh, not only because it's overwhelming and they can't parse it all because they're still trying to figure out what's going on in the basic story, but um, but because it can build mystery to put it off, right? You can get them engaged to be like, I don't know, what is the right of summoning that you keep referring to that's coming up that sounds spooky? You know, what's going to happen? And also because... Uh, it, the more you build up to it and the more invested you get your readers, the more detail you can give them. Like I had back when I was doing uh, research for Swords and Fire. Uh, so the society is very loosely based on, well, I mean, kind of loosely based on Venice. And Venice had an incredibly complicated election system, ludicrously complicated. And it was really cool. And I researched it and it was way too much detail. And originally I had an election system based on that. And I had to kind of simplify it down because it was crazy. But um, uh So I wound up building up to a big, important vote. And that, because the readers were invested and this was a super important vote that this whole series had been leading up to, then I could describe a bit of the election system and have it not be like, why are you telling me this? (laughs) Because they'd be like, ooh, how are we going to get enough votes to win this? Okay, hmm. Like, imagine if you had the Electoral College, like, and you were just info dumping that at the beginning of your book, people would hate you. They'd be like, this is stupid. Why are you telling us this? But if you're really invested in the election, you're like, ooh, how do we tip Wisconsin? Then suddenly it's (laughs) a lot more important. It all comes down to Nevada, then, you know. Right. (laughs) 
an editor, an editor would have changed that. I think. Yeah. Some editor needs to. Let's be real. <laughs> like, but like that almost makes me wonder: is like, is fiction perhaps part of the reason people like think democracy should be easier than it is? <laughs> Because we end up having to simplify it on the page so much. I mean, I'm like half kidding, but I'm half. Serious. No, I think you're Plus, absolutely I had a right. Very similar. Plus, I had a very similar problem when it came to the Roman tribal assembly and their electoral process, which was originally like a ten-page scene. Then it was like, no, you cannot do that to a reader. <laughs> but like, electoral systems are complicated. But in fiction, we we tend to oversimplify them and make it seem like you know majority rules is the clearer thing. Is that perhaps why so many people in real life think it should be easier than it is? Maybe. Mm. I mean, Lord knows Maybe. we've all looked at, like, the Hugo voting statistics and just been like, this is math that I don't get. I don't understand how math works. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> There's just some weird math. I don't understand it. Um, and that's yeah. fine. I mean, and Lord knows, I had the scene in Way of the Shield that takes place on the parliament floor where there's, like, all sorts of wonky things happening. And one of my beta readers is like, I... My job is to read legislative things for the Texas legislator, and I'm zoning out here. <laughs> so maybe you need to try. Yeah, that's that's an event horizon sort of thing. It's like you've gone where people can't follow. <laughs> but I mean, I think one of the other challenging things is finding that right balance of like keeping something a mystery until it needs to be revealed and having that mystery just be a mystery because you need it to be a mystery when there's no reason why it wouldn't be revealed. Like you just have people like playing the pronoun game for no reason whatsoever or like, or just, you know, your wizard character being like, I can't tell you that right now. And then 20 pages later is like, okay, now I can tell you nothing's changed, (laughs) but (laughs) right. Because I had to go to the bathroom, and so I didn't have time to tell you. Yeah, would have been no. super useful earlier, but <laughs> but not quite as feel dramatic. Like explaining and it, like, <laughs> yeah. you, I mean, you want you want things to be revealed at the right pace for the rule of drama, without it feeling like you're just holding things back for right. the rule of drama. I'm thinking one thing that jumps to my mind is in the Great Gatsby. Like, in the first third of the book, before Nick meets Gatsby, like, everything about Gatsby is a mystery. Nobody really, like, where is he? Who is he? Oh, we don't really know. Here's, here's one rumor about him. Here's another rumor. It's like, nobody really knows Gatsby. And as soon as Nick meets Gatsby, then, like, Gatsby is completely public and everybody knows him. Like, there's no mystery whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so why was yeah. there, like, why was there this mystery? Why wasn't it just like, oh, yeah, he's over here. Let me introduce you. The example I was thinking of was an excuse to crack on J.K. Rowling. Oh, which please do. Dumbledore never explaining anything. Right. Yeah. Right. To the kids who it directly concerns. Worst teacher yeah. ever. Like, you, could, yeah. you could have avoided all kinds of chaos by just fucking explaining things. <laughs> Not just saying, and this is a problem. I have I have a problem with the trope of leadership that ever just says, well, just do it because I said so. Like, oh, that's bad. Yeah. That's bad leadership yeah. and bad writing. But, like, when you do that for, like, five and a half books, <laughs> right? it's like, this has just gotten absurd. This is, come on now. Like, inform them, and yeah. maybe they'll stop taking ridiculous quests <laughs> on <laughs> to try to solve the problems that they don't know have other, like, it's just, it was, yeah. yeah. I didn't tell well, you, because my plan involved sacrificing a teenage boy, so <laughs> I, know, I didn't right? want to explain I'm, that. Admittedly, that is an awkward thing to have to <laughs> Like, yeah, I'm but. sadistic, so. Yeah. <laughs> but 
how much funnier would the series have been if he just come out with that <laughs> yeah. from the beginning? <laughs> sit down. Step one, <laughs> you're going to die. But not for a bit. Don't trust anything not I sure say. When. I'm a sadist. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorting hat anyone? <laughs> But yeah, uh, I know one thing with with the whole question of mystery, of course, there's the mystery for your readers versus the mystery for your characters. Mm. So like sometimes you can have something your characters all know, and that's why they're not talking about it. But but the readers are like, no, tell me more. Like, what what is this? Like uh, the one that leaps to mind for me is the uh, the beginning of the Hunger Games. Now, that's there's a book where mm. there's a ton of exposition you need to understand what the heck is happening. But uh, she doesn't dump it all on you right away because that would have been like just a tome mm-hmm. of explanation up front and instead she's making all these references to things that everybody knows you know she knows the character knows what it is so she's not explaining it to you and you're just like what is this what's happening this is kind of weird you know and there's all this tension over it and you don't necessarily know why there's this tension and you find out and you're like Ugh! and that kind of uh that kind of build up where the characters know and and you have a beautiful reason for not telling the reader which is that the characters know and they don't have any reason to talk about it yes that can work really well and that and then but it gets revealed at the right pace i think so that once you see what's going on, you're like, oh, that's what's going on. Right. As opposed to just like, I'm going to keep this thing a secret just to keep it a secret for a while. And then it's once it's revealed, we're going to... The other one... Oh. So for those of you who watched Lost, I actually loved almost all of Lost, but this is one that really bothered me a lot, which is there's a whole bit where they all refer to a character named Jeremy Bentham, just, you know, who is somebody off screen who just died. And then when you find out that Jeremy Bentham was actually Locke, then they just drop that pretense completely and just be like, but only once the viewer has learned that that's who it is. The the characters have no reason whatsoever to have dropped the pretense that they were doing before. They just drop it because now you, the audience, knows. And there's even more with that. that like, I, I could... I could do a whole podcast on Lost, and we're not going to do that. <laughs> but it is that thing of like, I'm only holding this information back for the purpose of secrecy to you, the reader, in ways that don't make sense for the character. Right. And but in when it works, when it's working for what the characters are doing and what they know and what they're revealing, as opposed to simply withholding for the sake of withholding for the drama of it all. Yeah. That's where that's where you run into problems. Hey. I- feel like we're we're coming up on our hour so is there anything we missed that anyone like really wanted to talk about oh, i had some cool examples i didn't get to work in but i don't know we covered the points they were attached to so that's fine <laughs> oh yes repetitive clunky passages of info dumping that's certainly i do when i edit through i do find myself doing that quite a lot where i will be like oh i said this oh i said it again oh i said it again <laughs> like you know <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's the, oh, you know, you didn't really explain this. And there's <laughs> like, oh, you mentioned this like 15 times. Like we hadn't heard it before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why? I'll, I'll, I'll do the thing in drafting where I'm like, I mention a thing and I, and I explain, I kind of explain it. And then later I'm like, oh, you need this other detail about it. And I'll like throw in another explanation where I'm just introducing one new detail. And then later like, oh, also you need to know about this. And then you explain it like four times and each time there's only one new detail. And like, then that really needs to get consolidated. (laughs) For me, it's often, you know, I write a scene and uh, the situation is on the character's mind. So I include that in there. And then 
I'll write another scene. And when I wrote it was like three weeks later. And I'm like, oh, that situation's on the character's mind. I need to include that in there. Then I'll write another scene. And when I wrote it is three weeks later. I'm like, that, that situation's on the character's mind. I need to <laughs> include that in. And then when I actually read it and like these three things like are 20 pages apart, you're like, hmm, that that's a bit much. <laughs> I don't yeah. need to bring it up quite as much as I actually did. I think I hit those loops when I'm like doing my chaos Muppet drafting <laughs> and I like explain a thing at a certain point. Like, I don't know, like why they wear a certain garment or something and I explain it. But then as I'm like redrafting, I realize that like they're wearing the garment earlier in the book and, and I've forgotten by that point that I explained the garment later on. And then I end up explaining it at a point that's earlier in the book, but later in my writing process. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes I'll do that a couple of times. And then when I finally read through the whole thing and I'm holding it all in my brain, I go, oh, you probably don't need to explain that three times. Probably once would be good. <laughs> Just give it to him the first time and then refer back. So something that happens to me exceedingly often is when I'm in the editing phase, I'll like be reading a sentence. I'll be reading one and I'm like, Oh, if he's saying that, then I need to explain this sort of, okay, I need to make a note of that. And then I'll just read the next paragraph. And I'm like, Oh, I do that exactly in the next paragraph. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Yep. Yeah. Sometimes the exact same words. Sometimes I'll start putting the exact same words. I'll start writing like, that on the notes. I'm like, oh, oh wait, yeah. that's, that's right there. Yeah. I already did that. And then sentences was, later be yep. like, oh, good job. Pass me with smart this time. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> you were there. Yeah. You were there. Yeah. Here's a question for you. What do you do with this stuff when you cut something really cool? Do you look for places to put it in later? Or like, do you put it? I know sometimes I've, I've, I've started sticking stuff on my Patreon because I'm like, I couldn't find anywhere to put this. So I'm going to go stick it on my Patreon. If you really want to know, you can go look. Or, or other times I've like, there was there was this world building piece I wanted to show in book one that uh, I finally, finally got to show it in like effectively book five, you know, the second book of the second series. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I save everything yeah. somewhere, right. and and I you know, have multiple drafts, and and yeah, I also throw things on Patreon all the time. It's like here's an earlier version of the scene where something completely different happened, or, or here's yeah. you know, a complete tangent that I cut. And yeah. I, I definitely save everything, but then often forget where I put it. So <laughs> <laughs> just the other day, there was a you don't have a spreadsheet for no, your cutscene because no, I cut them. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably have a better system than just dumping everything in a file that I call title of project recycling bin oh, and yeah. then just saving it and kind of like, I, I don't typically do anything with it, but I feel better because it's there and it's not deleted forever. For some reason that safety blanket gets me through. Yeah. I, but like just recently I was refining something in one of my actual world building documents and I was like, wait a minute, I wrote a whole bit about, how the parliament works in this like oh that was a bit that i cut okay where did i find and then like i actually like had to like go into like one of my backup hard drives that's in a closet and plug that in and be like oh there's where that is because i removed it from the laptop and but i did have it and i did find it so so at least that was that was helpful that, that's part of the problem when you do this much raw information oh yeah and Every once in a while, you're like, oh, yes, I have to go back and recompile it in a sensible way of, like, I, I really need an assistant yeah. or something who can just uh, go and make the wiki out of all of my garbage. <laughs> but no, it's got to be just me. <laughs> I have definitely done the thing where I'm like, oh, I explained this piece of world building. I don't need to explain it again. I explained it earlier. And then I forget that I cut that part. 
because uh, <laughs> it was in a scene that I just cut that entire scene or cut that entire subplot, and now there is zero explanation for this thing. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why you need l- beta readers who come in late in the process and haven't read your earlier drafts. <laughs> so they can be like, Melissa, what the hell is this thing you're referring to? I have gotten better about when I cut something and I put it in my recycling bin. I add a comment if it's some if there's a part of it that I'm like, you need to put this back in later. <laughs> So I've gotten right. better about this. And there's like pieces I'm pulling out. I add like in, you know, my little word doc comment. Usually don't forget within a single book. Do not leave out. Within the, the, the Scrivener file, I will then like put it to the side and put it in like the research tab as opposed to the rest, which is the beautiful thing about Scrivener. And I highly recommend it for all writers who can think nonlinearly in terms of how you're doing your writing. <laughs> it's beautiful. It, once once I, you figure out the bells and whistles of how Scrivener works and its learning curve, It's beautiful. I love it. I have my own system with like, I have my messy notes doc and my neat notes doc and then my like actual writing doc and I have them all open and I refer to them at certain times in certain ways and like, you know, Scrivener would be someone else's system. (laughs) (laughs) Like my system. Yeah, to me like, it's it's so funny too because then Scrivener like there's the there's the trash bin in your Scrivener project which doesn't like immediately eat things. You can always get something out of your trash bin. But I only put things there if they're definitely getting deleted. If they're things I might need later or might need part of later, there's a separate folder that I create that's just called scraps. And, like, that's where the things that, like, may get reworked back in go. Because, yeah, I've done what you said. Like, I I thought I explained this, but I didn't because I cut that scene. I've done it between books. I spent a solid day once searching my own manuscript, the the, the final of From Unseen Fire, for a scene I was sure was there. In the final book, to refer to it in book two, it was not. We had cut it like a year before, oh, but my no. brain kept it. Still thought it was there in the final draft. It's like, oh, that's oh, okay, all right, all right, back up. We can fix this. Oh, no. On the flip side of that, I remember when I wrote my my one published short story, which is Jump the Black. I reached a point when I was writing. I'm like, there's like I was describing somebody falling out of like this this hibernation pod. I'm like, I wrote a scene like this and something else and something in my in my graveyard. I'm like, I did do that and I dug through it. I'm like, this is a perfect description of how I want the scene to go. Copy, paste, <laughs> <laughs> done. Five year old five years ago me was very smart. <laughs> See it truly is a recycling bin. You never you know. You never know. You never know, you know, keep your graveyard because you never know what body parts you might want to to, to steal and make into your Frankenstein's monster of a book. No, don't do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no rotting corpses. Okay, it's more of a morgue with everything in front of a graveyard. No, no, Marshall. You're justifying your necromancy. <laughs> I would say get a shovel and keep digging. No, that's what you can do with the more bodies. Luckily, I have editing power over this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Before we adjourn, we always ask our guests who visit us um, to leave us a little gift before you go. Um, A little piece of trivia that we could slot into our shared world that we're world building. So, um, Melissa, what, what have you got for us? Okay. There is a secret 13th month 
But it's not on the calendar because nobody actually ever knows when it's going to happen because it happens outside the normal year. But it's always the worst month. So the way you know that the 13th month is happening is because horrible things keep happening one after the other. And after a bit, you go, oh, it's the 13th month and realize that it has slipped up on you. And here you are. So we've been in the 13th month for the last two years and change is what I'm hearing here. <laughs> Maybe the last six years and change. I don't know. I love it because it's well, like... I love it. Because it. it's like Mercury in retrograde on speed. Like... <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I love it. Thank you, Melissa, for that. Well, Though thank you. Characters that we would <laughs> write in the world would not thank you, I think, for that. But no. that's the way we like They're it. They're all very mad now, but, you know, that's our job is to make them mad. That's, Absolutely. That's if sure. they wanted good lives, they shouldn't have been in a novel. <laughs> that's what you get for being fictional. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you very much for joining us again, Melissa. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. It's always great. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on April 13th, where we'll be revisiting the world we've been building online and play a few rounds of Merry Fuck Kill with some of the world building ideas we've been talking about in recent months. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.